3: Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 16th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show, committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African American community.
4: Good evening, I'm William Hosea. On May 25th, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was killed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, while being arrested for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill. During that arrest, Derek Chauvin, a white police officer with the Minneapolis Police Department, knelt on Floyd's neck for approximately nine minutes and 30 seconds after he was handcuffed and lying face down.
3: The following day, after videos made by witnesses and security cameras became public, all four officers were dismissed. Two autopsies found Floyd's death to be a homicide. Viewers are now following the televised trial of Derek Chauvin, who has been charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter of Mr. Floyd.
4: The defense argues that Floyd died as a result of the drugs found in his system and underlying medical issues, but prosecutors said Floyd was killed by Chauvin's knee on his neck for more than nine minutes. News outlets like USA Today state that this trial presents a national reckoning on race.
3: And this trial is a noticeable departure from jury trials that have limited access to the proceedings. Live streaming this trial lets everyone, especially people of color, monitor the justice system. It has been noted that George Floyd's death was traumatizing for black teens who feared the trial will be just as painful. Derek Chauvin's attorney says this trial isn't about race, and experts say it is.
4: And finally, will Americans find the justice they need at Derek Chauvin's trial? Here to help us decipher these judicial proceedings are Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte, Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant, and Monroe County Circuit Judge, the Honorable Valerie Harden Motley. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Thank having me. You. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for
3: taking the time to join us. Um, as of this airing, this is a pre-recorded airing just for our listening public, so between now and Monday the 12th, some things could have transpired that we may not touch upon the night, but today there is great talk about the drugs that were found in Mr. Floyd's body upon uh, the autopsies, what they revealed, and I just want to uh, ask um, Prosecutor Oliphant um, your thoughts on the the defense's efforts to paint Mr. Floyd as a drug user um, and being under the influence. That's the conclusion I, I feel they're moving towards. And certainly he was irrational. He was belligerent. He was besides himself. And I, and I don't want to read too far to that. But just using that defense. Do you think that makes sense in this point?
2: Yeah. So as a preliminary matter, you know, the prosecution is the only party in this case that has a burden of proof and it is uh, we have to. the the prosecution has to prove every element of the offenses charged beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's a strict and heavy burden of proof. And so the biggest part of the proof in this case is going to be proving causation of George Floyd's death. Um, And so if, if the prosecution cannot establish that Derek Chauvin caused George Floyd's death, then they're dead in the water. They can't prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt and um, the jury must acquit. And so um, the reason that the defense is going so hard after um, causation in this case is is for that reason. And so they are trying to say that the uh, asphyxiation, that um, the fact that Floyd's heart stopped is a result of his drug use and a pre-existing heart condition that he had. And if they can chip away at that causation, um, you know, that, that defense could have legs. The second part of the defense is um, that, you know, they're arguing that Chauvin was not, or was operating within policy and training. And so Um, even if he caused death, there may have been a justification. That's the second part of their defense. Uh,
3: Let me, let me quickly follow up. I, I noticed that he's being charged with second degree murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. Mr. Floyd, is this an effort to perceivably cover all bases and why not first degree murder? Well,
2: um, you know, we're talking about Minnesota law, which is not an area, it's, it's a different structure than what we have here in Indiana, but I'll, I'll do my best to, to try to help you out here. Um, when I was on your um, program back in June of last year talking about this, I think I was, I was trying to explain that. Um, I, I believe that prosecutors think this is the easiest case to make. So second degree murder is essentially causing the death of a human being. Um, without necessarily intending to affect the death of that person, but while committing or attempting to commit a felony. So it's kind of what we would call here in in Indiana, felony murder. And so first degree murder is going to be causing death, essentially with purpose, intending to cause that death. And so it's a little bit more difficult when you have to prove that state of mind, of intent to kill, whereas in this, you know, you you don't have to prove that. Um, and then third degree murder, murder um, which is a little bit lesser than secondary murder, is causing the death of another person by perpetrating an act eminently dangerous to others and evincing a depraved mind without regard for human life. So, again, it doesn't involve the proof of that state of mind intent to kill. It's rather you were engaged in this dangerous activity with a depraved mind. You, you knew it could possibly harm this person and you did it anyway and you caused death. Um, And then second degree manslaughter lowers the bar a little bit more and it's causing death by culpable negligence. So creating an unreasonable risk um, and that, you know, could cause death or great bodily harm to another person.
4: Thank you. Interesting. At this point, um, I had a couple of questions after watching uh, the proceedings, and I want to pivot to uh, the defense just a little bit here. Suggestions by the defense that Floyd's death was due to drugs and that the officers were threatened by the crowd have been described as just totally ridiculous. One reason is because this is probably the most thoroughly documented murder that I know about that I've ever seen. But I'm not the least bit surprised that the, the defense went there, because when you have nine and a half minutes of watching this man, this police officer, just slowly and callously distinguish the life out of this man, and we could see it in phases. You know, he was going from fully breathing to, to less and less and less and, until he was finally dead. Is it any surprise? I mean, it seems to me that the defense had nowhere else to go. Is it any surprise that they had to just grasp their straws and something ridiculous to try and come up with any type of defense? Uh, Judge Harden, can you take that one, please?
1: I'm not going to call it ridiculous. I, I I would just say it's probably their strategy. I, I'm saying that from a, the legal perspective, because my own personal perspective may be a little different. Um, one of the things that the, as, as prosecutor Alphant said, is that the state has the burden of proof. And so the defense just has to poke holes in the, in the state's case. And one of the things that they do and that uh, former, that Mr. Chauvin's attorney is, is doing is trying to poke holes in the, in the prosecutor's case and saying okay he may have he may have died from asphyxiation from lack of oxygen to his brain which caused his heart to stop but part of that was because he was a drug user part of that was because he had drugs in the system that contributed to the slowdown of his breathing that contributed to his his having something else wrong that that It may not have been solely Chauvin's knee on his neck and back that caused him not to breathe. There may have been other contributing factors. And while I understand that, you you know, many people have criticized that as ridiculous, if they can get one juror and all they need is one juror out of those 12 people to say, you know, they may have a point there. That might have been a contributing factor. I'm not so sure that he was totally responsible for it. That's all they need. And if they do that, if one person holds out, then they don't have a conviction. So even though it may seem absurd, and we all, well, many of us saw that video and saw him you know, slowly dying in front of our eyes, injecting some sort of doubt is, is what the defense has to do. So they're going to try to try him, put the victim on trial and try to inject some reasonable doubt, poke holes in the case that you know will make somebody, anybody on that jury say, I'm not so sure. You
4: know, my, my next question might explain why I got kicked out of law school. <laughs> in fact, I never got that far. They just wrote me and asked me not to even come. <laughs> but but here goes. So uh, uh, a non-legal lay person, in my mind, uh, George Floyd is up walking walking around. Uh, while he was in the store, the clerk testified that he was uh, um, very engaging. Just uh, I think he even used the word jovial. I could be wrong.
0: Uh-huh.
4: So. Uh, Common sense, George Floyd was fine until he encountered Derek Chauvin. After encountering Derek Chauvin, he was dead. And so at the end of the day, had he not encountered Derek Chauvin, he would still be alive today, barring some unfortunate uh, fatal car crash or something. So take Derek Chauvin out of the equation, George Floyd would be alive today.
1: And your question, I guess I'm, are you saying that is your question?
4: That's just my thinking, but you're welcome to comment on it. See, that's why I didn't invite him to fly to law school. (laughs) I I threw a disclaimer out there. Yes, you did.
1: (laughs) I think Um, that that is exactly the state's position, that had it not been for for Chauvin's actions, George Floyd would be alive or would have survived that day, that's for sure. You know, that (laughs) his actions were definitely the cause of his death.
4: See, I wasn't that far off. (laughs) I I have a a question
3: for our distinguished captain, uh, Marte. Uh, You've been on our show a number of times. We've talked about a variety of different uh, topics. Um, uh, Some were not only current events, but they were heated current events. And you've always presented a very balanced perspective, and I appreciate that. And I know some of those conversations were kind of painful to have. Um, And and I'm noticing a trend in this particular case. I just read tonight that at least 10 officers have uh, provided testimony that was extremely critical, if not rather indicting of Chauvin. Uh, Your thought on that, and my follow-up, I'll just ask now, is this sort of, Uh, An example of the blue wall crumbling, and of course the blue wall is is something that is not official, but people say that it it does exist, but we have 10 officers plus a police captain, a police chief rather, whose very testimony has been rather damning on Chauvin's uh, defense and and your thoughts on that.
0: Well, I I, I could tell you that, that What's coming to light now in, 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 the, in the police culture has existed for a long time, but it's just not as getting the light as it's getting now. And what I mean by that is that the negativity normally gets to the front of the line every single time. But I could tell you in my world, when I'm dealing with white officers, to be very specific, what we observe in this event, what we're talking about now, I have never seen before at all. At all. And the white officers themselves are saying this is this is something that just you, you can't defend this. There's no way. What happens in the police culture is, is this. Anytime you go physical with a person, it looks really bad. It looks ugly to the public. It does, you know. And unfortunately, then we have to explain why we did what we did based on our training and based on what the situation requires us to do to gain control of the situation. What happened here was not that, this was something different. So it puts us in a very difficult position that we do a very poor job explaining why we did what we did and what caused us to do what we did in the sense of when we go hands on. So at this point, When you see all these officers very clearly saying what they saw, no way do they condone it was wrong. It was not based on their training. That's been going on for a long time. Now, what I will tell you what's new uh, in a sense that is going around right now fairly quickly is every police department at this point, which most likely they practice it, but they making making crystal clear, uh, which is called duty to intervene that if you see another fellow officer doing something that should not be done, you have a requirement to step in and stop that act. And if you don't, you are being held accountable as well. Now, one problem that we do have, and I'll crystal clear with that as well, is that we do have a culture that when we train our officers, a person that just come out of the academy and is being placed with a field training officer you do not question that officer. You, you do what they tell you to do. So we have to change that culture as well, because if they even though you just came out the academy day one and you see something that's wrong. Definitely wrong then you need to stop it, no matter what your rank is at that point.
4: You know, um, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up. That actually goes right to my next question that I had for you. But two of those officers, uh, Officer Quang and Officer Lane, were only days into the job when the incident happened. Uh, being a f- uh, person who wore a uniform for a long time, I certainly understand the, uh, how difficult it would be for a private, and I don't know if police use the same rank structure, but for a private to step up until tell a seasoned senior ranking sergeant to stop, don't do this. That, I mean, unless I walked up to him and saw him uh, putting a knife into somebody's heart, uh, just something obviously had to be more egregious for those two rookies to think that they could intervene. Um, can you understand the the position that they were in and why they kind of hung back? And obviously they were trusting this senior officer to be to enough to, to believe he was doing the right thing.
0: You're 100% correct. This is so difficult because I I, I I was trying to put myself in their shoes and you know, we're, we're trained that you might not see something that your fellow officer might right. see and you don't see. And at any given moment, we understand that we might not go home that 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 sh- return home from that shift based on if you don't trust your your fellow officer. It, 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 there, there goes a dilemma. That, that That's that's the difficult balance that we have to balance right now. Um, and it's so difficult. Because not only were they not seasoned, they just came out the academy. They have the burden to respect the rank structure, which was drilled into them in the academy. And now you have this event taking place and you know it's wrong, but you're wondering, is there something this man see that we're not seeing? And then what if he's right and we're wrong? Now what? So it's it was a... You know, I just hate saying this. It was almost a lose-lose for those those two Yeah. It, yeah. It, it, I hate really saying that, but it was a it was a situation I just don't know. You know, based on the culture of law enforcement, as as a military man yourself, you understand, you know, you you're you're not trained to question. You are trained to 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 actually comply with your with your training. Now this is the part that is so difficult because this really looks—it is bad. Period. Looks bad. It was bad. No doubt about it. Um, and those officers right now, you know, their their lives have just changed forever based on that one individual that I won't mention his name. What he what he what he has done, you know, what he has done. So so it's hard for me to really clarify that. It, it's just difficult because it's so much that goes behind that. To go through whatever months of training that those officers went through, and then you see your senior officer there doing what he's doing, and you're you're in back in your mind you're thinking, wait a minute, this is this is not right. But at the same time, your training kicks in and says, well, maybe he sees something we don't. I tell you, it's 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 a position that my goodness, it just it it I could I cannot explain it. Well, like you said, it was lose lose. It, it was. It really was. Clarence. Uh, if you just joined
3: us um, on bringing on this evening, we're having a conversation with, with three distinguished individuals who are helping us to sort of decipher the current judicial proceedings in the Derek Chauvin case. We have uh, a gentleman who just spoke was Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte. We also have Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant and Monroe County Circuit Judge the Honorable Valerie Hawkins Motley. Uh, I, I have a sort of a follow-up to um, Captain Marte, should the other three officers who were present face any other than being terminated, which they were all for, were all terminated, should there be something more that they should be held into account for? Or because you said their lives are forever changed. But is there anything judicial that they should should have to be accountable for?
0: Oh goodness, that—that's a tough question for me at my level. You know, I—I'm I, not i am not a prosecutor. Sure. I'm not a judge. I'm not an attorney, and—and that's—that's—that's that's tough. Normally, when you ask me a question, I like to give a straight answer. And on that one, you know, I,
3: I, well, let I'm me, let, me, let me let me pause. Let me pause because I just thought, as you said that, it's true. That's why we have prosecutor all with us. He'll <laughs> be more than happy to address that particular point. So I'll redirect, I'll I'll redirect, I'll (laughs) redirect. Was was that correct, uh, Judge Judge, uh, Haughton? I'll redirect my question, Your Honor, to uh, Prosecutor Oliphant. I mean, in this case, I mean, and and I guess what's probably overshadowing everything is that it's not only national, this is international. Uh, it, It sort of sparked the peaceful protest summer, but it did spark a lot of changes. And the weight of the gravity of all this on a prosecutor, and, and if I, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes if you were the prosecutor in Minneapolis, uh, or this, or however it was determined who should be on trial. Your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, I think it's adding another layer of difficulty to the case because um, you know, with Chauvin, Chauvin, you can prove that he did something. He was kneeling on this person, and he he was hands-on uh to use the captain's language um you know the other three officers to succeed in prosecution against them you're going to have to use an aiding theory they assisted Derek Chauvin in his actions and I think that's a really challenging um legal structure to try to to try to prove up um You know, I think that they've probably experienced a lot of uh, a lot of consequences from this, not just termination from their jobs, but a lot of public condemnation and probably a tough road getting future employment. But um, I I don't know about whether they should face additional consequences, but I can tell you that as a prosecutor, it would be very difficult to succeed on a prosecution on an aiding theory, I think. But, you know, I, I I am not sure if Minnesota has a an easier time with that than we do. If if I could jump in for a second,
1: I I, I agree I agree with you about it being a much harder um, burden. Adding another layer, I also think that a lot will depend on whether or not Chauvin is convicted. I keep saying that, but but I think that if he is convicted, then that will make it easier for the state to proceed with the others. Because, you know, that's why they're trying him first. As she said, you know, he actually did something. My guess is that if he's convicted, they may charge them with with, uh, aiding in some way. And I would also guess that we will see plea agreements with regard to them rather than actually going to trial. Just a...
4: Something else that I found uh, interesting is that these guys face backlash outside of the, uh, the, the legal problems. Um, officer Quang, the one black officer, his mother says that he joined the force to bridge the gap between the races. And he was one of those that was fresh out of the academy. However, one of his siblings says she wanted to change her surname. The other sibling says he should be held accountable, and he should have been arrested. So, you know, you have some deep family divisions going on uh, as a result of this.
3: Just an that's enough to, that's enough to pause on right there, um, because this case has is impacting, not only has it is impacting, because it's not yet sorted out. What's going to happen? Um, and and let me follow up with this: the impact of the police chief testifying in this case, um, uh, Captain Amartei. Your your thoughts on? You have the chief coming now, and you know just weighing in on this. What impact is that going to have on the jury?
0: I, I can't say what impact it has on the jury, but I can tell you what impact it has on the police department because. Uh, he made it crystal clear. That's not going to be something that is going to be condoned. Uh, he's going to be transparent. Uh, and obviously this individual has a very tough job. And as he was talking and testifying, you know, I, I got the impression that he, he's trying to turn around a department and, and put it in a way that that should be ran and, and viewed a certain way in a positive light. And this happens and he's not happy. And I, and I, I, I I, I, I don't blame him. You know, he has a very difficult job to do. And, you know, to have an employee do something to what to the degree this individual did, it sets him back tremendously. Because apparently, the little, very little that I know, and I, I can tell you, I, 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 I've been trying to mend the bridge between the police and the community, you know, for now going on eight years. And that's a difficult task. I mean, you constantly have to stay on top of your A game and i'm not i'm not i'm not the superintendent for the state police so i couldn't even imagine what this individual is going through that he worked so hard to 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 mend the bridge between his department and the black community and the brown community and then this happens so i i he, he his job just compounded after this incident so so what he what he did on that, on, 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 on uh, as he testified, I, I, I watched watched a little bit that I could when I had time, and he did a outstanding job. At from what I could tell, he did a a phenomenal job uh, articulating what is tolerated for his department and what is not tolerated, and he made that crystal clear. Now that goes a long way to the other officers to understand that that type of action or that type of uh, 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 activity in his department is not going to be tolerated. And I applaud him for that.
4: I want to ask um, Judge houghton and Prosecutor Oliphant, if, if you heard anything that came out during the trial so far, that was uh, really surprising to you that you did not know before the testimony uh, was given. For example, I had no idea that the EMT uh, the firefighter had been on the scene offering first aid and offering to assist in first aid so that to me that was kind of like a bombshell but Ken is is there anything else that you notice uh, along those lines?
1: Well I haven't been able to watch very much of it and I doubt that either of us has been able to Um, but today I actually watched some of it and I watched one of the um, I think it was The forensic, oh gosh, he was a scientist, but I I know he was a a doctor. And I was surprised that he was just very unequivocal in saying George Floyd died because of lack of oxygen. And that lack of oxygen was caused by Derek Chauvin's knee being on his neck and back. I mean, he was so definite and so un- moved by anything that the defense uh, suggested. That was surprising to me because you don't usually hear such definitive testimony from expert witnesses. And as somebody else commented, he he was very engaging. People listened to him. I know that I was kind of hanging on every word that he said and that surprised me because that that doesn't usually happen. Usually they'll say, well, this is likely and this is probable and there is a high probability that X will happen or that X has happened. But for him to say, this is what caused his death was, I I was taken aback. I'm not going to lie. It was surprising to me. You
3: know, to that point, it was interesting, I think, the witness, um, or the defense rather, the defense pounced immediately to say, well, it's not so conclusive that his knee was on his neck for the duration of those nine minutes and that his knee shifted to his shoulder, which of course that didn't block any breathing airways. I mean, so, and so they're beginning to kind of hang their defense on just about any low hanging, well, that's not even low hanging fruit, but but anything that will um, cast a shadow of doubt, which which is their job try to poke a hole in the case. Now, one thing I'd like to just bring you know, to the conversation, what do you think about the strategy? I don't know if this was timed, although I'm not naive, naive enough to think that things aren't necessarily thought thoroughly through, but of bringing the civil trial first and getting the conviction with 27 million, and now the impact of that settlement on the actual criminal proceedings. Your thought on that, uh, Prosecutor Oliphant?
2: Well, um, I was very surprised <laughs> that um, that they didn't try, and maybe they did, and I just didn't hear about it, but they didn't try to move this criminal trial out further away from that judgment, because it's a pretty um, hefty judgment that, you know, could potentially impact, Um, you know, they would try to find jurors who haven't been too exposed to the case, um, who wouldn't have preformed any um, opinions about the case. But, uh, you know, I I think that has some impact that you already have this judgment against them. Um, In terms of strategy, I do think it's Here locally, in my experience, usually the civil case chases the criminal case. So I do think that's a little unusual, but uh, I'm not sure strategy wise. I, I think usually they do it because our burden of proof is higher and, you know, the burden of proof in a civil case is lower. It's preponderance of the evidence. So if we get a conviction, it's really easy for them to use that in the civil case to get what they what they want. But. Um, you know, maybe they weren't worried about what the, what the criminal case was going to do and just went ahead and did it. So, but yeah, if I, if I were the defense, I would not want to be trying this case a week after or, or within a week of, of hearing about this judgment.
3: I know there were some objections raised, um, or some critique raised about just the order of things, but someone made the call to say, Let, let's, let's do this first. Um, Officer, uh, I'm sorry, Captain Marche, you, to your credit, you have painstakingly hosted workshops throughout the state. And you had a, a very compelling title with these workshops, How to Survive a Police Pullover. And it's something, a variation of that title, but basically everybody that read that flyer or heard the topic Got it right away. How to survive and go home alive after an encounter, or whatever. What could George Floyd have done? And this is severe arm arm armchairing, but what could he have done, or what was not done that we didn't see on the camera that uh, would have really helped him go home alive?
0: Ooh, wow! That's my goodness, <laughs> well, I brutally honest i i i wish the brother would have just, just complied I, I i wish he really just didn't resist at the point of of being
3: when i see camera still shots where a hand is reaching for his arm
0: yeah from the from the beginning i i you know i know the outcome so this is difficult yeah. for me yeah. to say but I really truly you know i always tell 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 uh when I reach out to the community' you know you, you do not want to fight the police and, uh, at a traffic stop when you you just don't want to do that um and I always tell them listen, comply and then then hold us accountable at another time, you know and there's ways of doing that um and I'll be honest with you, having this conversation right now is difficult for me because I know the outcome. And I, I, I when I when I saw that. From the initial beginning, you know, because we we're talking about kind of fit $20 bill. Goodness, you know, it, it, it didn't have to. It wasn't it, 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 it wasn't the call of a felony. Activity taking place, we talking about a $20 bill. So on the officer side, I, I don't want to put everything on him, but I, on the officer side, I'm thinking, I don't, I don't understand that part, but to, to, to be fair to your question, to, to, cause I want to answer your question directly. I I really, you know, if, 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 if that was my brother that I said, listen, just comply for now, we'll, 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 if you end up, we'll get you out of jail. We'll hold that officer accountable. We'll fix this, but we need you alive, you know? So, to answer your question directly, that's one of the main things I try to really push because you just don't know which officer you're dealing with. You just don't know, you know. And 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 here here we have this terrible event. Um, so it, it's it's tough for me to answer that question, but the the truth is, I, I wish he really he would have complied. I wish. I it a quick, quick follow-up to this,
3: um, you and your efforts and public outreach, public education, awareness raising, uh, sort of demystifying this whole encounter because there's a psychology. I remember you shared before on one of our shows that the officer that pulls someone over in some respects is just as anxious as the person that's being pulled over because this officer wants to go home safe to his family and the person being pulled over wants to go home safe to their family. But there's this weird, weird dance that needs to take place right now. And that's something was seen that was out of order or illegal. It needs to be addressed. But then to your to your credit, as always, you have always presented it as these are the things you need to do. And you even mentioned, you know, if you can see a badge number, just notate it in your mind. You know, I've seen people say, here's a card, you read from this card. Uh, I have the right officer to do that, and I'm thinking maybe that's not a good thing to read, or maybe it is. You got to size up the situation. But will you incorporate this nine-minute, thirty-second horror film in future training or future
0: workshops or future education of the public? You know, that's a very good question, and 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 I, you know it's a very difficult one to respond to because this should have never happened because we hold officers to a higher standard. So when you ask me very specifically what should have the person being stopped have done, that's a response that I gave you then. However, what I didn't say was, however, the officer is always held to a higher standard. You know, this begins with. I'm sorry, go ahead. go ahead, go ahead. But but it begins with both people in that actual encounter walking away, being able to go ahead and continue with their lives. And then down the road, if need be, if you need to hold an officer accountable, and we talk about that, there are certain steps you need to do. Because you mentioned earlier, I can't remember who mentioned this about the Thimble line. Well. I, I'm I'm sorry. You know, it, 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 there are certain ways to do certain things that you hold all of us accountable. Um, because I, I've been doing this for thirty years, and I, I I could tell you that I have never come across something to that effect that someone has done something of, to a degree that you you cannot hold someone accountable. There are ways of doing it, but you have to be aware how to do it, and unfortunately the general public is not aware how to do it. And one of the things that I do try to do when we encounter and we try to uh, educate the, the public is that you have to follow certain things, a certain way of doing it and, and hold us accountable for whatever that we do that, even if it appears to be wrong, how to do that.
4: For our listening audience, we're discussing the prosecu- prosecution of Derek Chauvin and here to enlighten us uh, a little bit is Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte, Monroe County Prosecutor Eric oliphant and Monroe County Circuit Judge the Honorable Val Houghton Modley? Um you know that that subject could take us into another show altogether. So I'm going to hit the reset button here and go back to the judge and the prosecutor and I want to ask if you could explain to us how uh, the determination was made to go with second degree, third degree murder and a mass charge instead of a first degree murder charge. And then I have a question, a follow up question based on your answer. Who wants
1: to go first? Well, I think that that Erica already. Well, two things. One it's Minnesota law, so it's somewhat different than than Indiana law, but also is the degree of what we call mens rea or or mindful acts, and um, for them to have gone to the first degree murder, let's say here would have been that Chauvin would have had to have basic you would the state would have to prove that Chauvin showed up on the scene with the intent that I'm going to kill that man that we're about to that we're about to uh, encounter. I mean that pretty much would have to be the the proof. That the state would have the burden of, of, of making. You know, they'd have to prove that he went into the situation with the intent to kill that man. And I think that would be very difficult. I quite frankly, I doubt that he did that. But the kind of what we would call here, I think, depraved indifference or a reckless act or just what you, I think, earlier described as callousness to what he was doing and the very high probability that it would result in someone's death. That's what second and third degree murder charges in Minnesota, from what I understand, go towards. And Erica, if you want to please jump in on that.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I saw in the in the chat from Clarence a question about how Indiana law differs, and I can answer that a little bit. So, in Indiana, the equivalent to first degree murder um, would have been um, just called murder here in Indiana, and it's uh, to you know to premeditated cause the death of another intentionally. Um, the felony murder that we have here, what they're calling second degree murder, um that that would be the same level here in Indiana as as premeditated murder. So um Indiana law would have would have allowed us to charge this as as straight murder we don't have degrees of murder. Okay. Um and so so that would have been the same as a premeditated killing under Indiana law if we if we could prove a felon that he killed somebody while committing a felony. Um, so that that's the biggest difference, I think, in the in the laws that we don't have those those numerical steps. Um, under murder in Indiana is voluntary manslaughter, which takes out that's that's like the sudden heat defense. It's usually like you killed someone on purpose, you meant to do it, but there was some sort of um, sudden he is usually the, the classic example is a domestic situation where the spouse catches another spouse engaged in uh, adultery and snaps that's the classic example that we always use for voluntary manslaughter and the step below that is is involuntary and I think those are the closest that we could come to second third and and uh, second degree manslaughter Hope that answered that question.
4: Oh, it does. It does. Um, Which leads me directly to my follow-up question. I've heard several times during the trial that police are required to administer first aid. Of course, that didn't happen. But by not administering first aid or CPR and refusing the help and advice of a trained EMT, it, it seems that instead of doing anything that they could to save Floyd's life, they seem to do everything to ensure his death. And then when Officer Chauvin kept his knee on his neck after being repeatedly warned by onlookers that the man had stopped breathing, that he was dying and pleased by George Floyd, it seems that his intent was to kill the man. That's, that's William Hosea talking. That's how I see it. Do, does that have any impact uh, uh, on the prosecution at this point?
1: I think the prosecution is going to hammer that over and over again, that that's exactly what he did, that he ignored their pleas. He ignored his pleas. They ignored offers for help, which knowing that what he was doing was dangerous and could possibly result in death. I think the prosecution is going to say that over and over again in every way they can through every witness that they can.
4: Do you think they would go so far as to say that, uh, Officer Chauvin intended to kill him though by his well, actions.
1: That's where you get into the what he's charged with. Yeah. You know, because getting into somebody's head and trying to say this is what they were thinking is virtually impossible.
4: Oh, they do that all the time though.
1: Well, they say it, but they can't they can't really prove it. So what they have to do is show that his actions
2: mm-hmm. by
1: inference this is what he was thinking
2: you know yeah, yeah. they're not going to be able to oh sorry to step on go, on for, your, it. go for it judge um you know they're not going to be able to elevate the charge at this stage if that's okay. the question that you're asking they won't be able to tack on um a first degree murder charge at this point in the proceedings
3: yeah i have i have a, a question out um, isn't it ironic that the act itself was recorded live and we saw someone's life being taken before our eyes. And now the court case is being streamed live, which in this case, particular situation, I think would be highly unusual. Uh, and it kind of speaks towards uh, being fully transparent with this whole proceeding and the resolution of it or the determination of guilt in it. And one of the questions we had as we led into this conversation, uh was will americans find the justice they need during this trial i think there's an opportunity here uh to really in some really different way bring some somewhat healthy closure to what we viewed that was shocking i mean and 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 that has been imprinted on all our minds and there are other images unfortunately over the last five years or so that have been imprinted in our minds but now the court proceeding is being streamed live. You know, you can say what you want about law and order on TV. You don't get more realistic or, or authentic than this. So just, just observations. Um, again, I'm not asking for predictions of outcome. Um, but just your, your response or your observation that, wow, you know, the act is recorded live and now the proceedings are being recorded live. Your thoughts on that?
2: I think in this case, it's a a good choice to share this with the public. Um, You know, this case has gotten so much attention nationally and internationally um, that this this level of transparency, I think, is going to hopefully um, instill some confidence in the public that uh, this ha- this case is being handled confidently and seriously by these prosecuting attorneys and in the court. Um, you know, I, it would stress me out to be that prosecutor, um, knowing that that the whole world was watching. So I, you know, I have a lot of empathy for those folks right now.
3: now I may add real quickly that not only was the act caught, not well, captured live because of technology of, of our Cell phone devices, and also closer to TV or uh, camera, security cameras. The services for George Floyd were being live, so so you were on this emotional roller coaster. And those that spoke at his funeral, uh, I you know I've watched Reverend Al Sharpton before, but as they say, he brought it. He brought it, and now the court case. And all we need now is, and I think. Our president, current president, has been very careful not to voice an opinion. I don't think I've heard his opinion on this. Um, but just you know, mixing all that together, we are being taken on an emotional roller coaster ride, and, and the craziness, in my opinion, has to stop.
1: Um, I'm not sure it's going to stop, but I think I, I agree that I think the transparency, considering the fact that that so many people saw that video and that it went viral, and not just in this country, but internationally. uh, It's vital for the nation to get some sort of closure with this case. That doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, like the Breonna Taylor's case, especially because no one was prosecuted for her murder. And I think, especially in light of that, and in light of so many other police killings of civilians uh, that have either gone unprosecuted or have resulted in acquittals, I think that something that was apparently so very definite, you know, in in terms of of Chauvin's actions, I, I think that that closure is necessary and that transparency is necessary for people to feel that there is some sense of justice. And 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 it's not an isolated thing. I'm not gonna try and get too political, but there are all sorts of things going on now that I think have culminated as a result of say, the past four years or so that um, have caused so much unrest that people need to see that their voices are still heard and that there is such thing as justice
3: anymore. Uh, I have a final question. We have about um, four minutes left and um, unless you want to go another hour. No, we, we, do want to, we do want to invite you back for say a post-analysis of, of what we see happening. Um, I think one of the bigger questions or bigger topics is going to be how do we and, and I want to speak directly to our, our fine captain here how do we maintain police accountability? Because it has been noted by police of all ranks, all officers of all ranks, that there are corrupt officers or the term bad apples that need to be weeded out. But, but what can we the public do to help? What can departments do? You already mentioned that, the emphasis on um, if you see another officer exceeding a certain threshold, by all means, you're duty bound to, to jump in. But uh, what up? What other measures can be taken?
0: I, I, I tell you, the public now, with with when you mentioned with the iPhone and, and the recording uh, any incident that looks strange. I, I I I was talking to a young lady a couple of days ago, and she said to me, you know, anytime I see police pull someone over, I just record it. You know, just just because I just don't know. You know, that's where we're at. And I tell you what, I I, I don't don't blame her, you know? So, so when we talk about how to hold, you know, officer accountable, that, that's me, you know, that tool right now with the, with the iPhone, it's a good tool. It really, really is because, you know, we have officers that shouldn't be wearing that uniform. And it's funny though, because I, I shouldn't say it's funny. Let me take that back. It's ironic when we actually train with the police officers, you know, In the eight years that I stand in front of a group of officers, and I say to them, point blank, we have officers that have no business wearing that uniform. I have not gotten a pushback, not a one time. And the majority of the officers are white. They're white. And And I'm not referring to only Indiana State Police, people that know me. I'm talking about officers that don't have a clue who I am. All they know, I'm one of their presenters that was invited to talk to them. About cultural awareness for law enforcement. How do we mend the bridge between the black and brown community and the police? That's all they know. And when I say to them, we have people that have no business wearing this uniform, and not a one time I got a back. So the acknowledgement is there, on the police side, is there. Now the tough part is how do how do we how do we how do we get both sides here to 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 really really mend this because. What happens is when the incident like this happens, it sets us back so much. Now, that being said, when I talk to the community side, and I have, in fact, I'm getting ready to gear up to go to another community and, and talk to those folks here shortly. Um, the community is thirsty for information and they want to work with the police. Unfortunately, well, the media that we have at the present time does not show that. All this shows the negativity. But right, I can right. tell you, hands personally, myself, when I talk to the officers, oh my goodness, there's no pushback. When I talk to the community, what I get, what what I what I in, interpret for them and say, listen, we want the police, we want to work with the police, but we do not want the ones that are causing us problems to police our neighborhoods. And you know what? Who who doesn't want that? I would not want that for myself, for my kids, for my family. It's it's a very sincere and honest request. So, the 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 the, the, the degree of of, of, of understanding from both sides is there. Is there, unfortunately, what's being pushed to the forefront is a negativity. Now, what happened here needs to be handled. And I and I, and I pray that, that it'll be handled inappropriately and the outcome is appropriate as well.
3: And we're gonna let that be uh, the last word. Uh, as as always is the case on an engaging topic, we run out of time. We do wanna invite you back. Um, Captain Marte to talk about some of those initiatives and measures that are going forth to further bridge the, the uh, divide. And uh, at some future point, we do want to reach out to you for that. But uh, we are so grateful to have had the following individuals on tonight, Indiana State Police Captain Ruben Marte, who you just heard Monroe County Prosecutor Erica Oliphant and Monroe County Circuit Judge the Honorable Valerie Houghton Motley for helping us to decipher the judicial proceedings in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. We will be monitoring the trial and its, and its conclusions,
4: and uh, we will provide a post-analysis of the verdict. Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have any ideas for this program, please send them to us. You can email our volunteer staff. We wanna make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address is bringiton@wfhb.org. at wfhb.org.
3: And if you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the information directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about tonight's guest, contact contact us once again at On at
4: wfhb.org. Our show's executive producer is Clarence Boone. Yours truly is the assistant producer. Our consultant and WFHB news department director is Cade Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. Original theme music was created by Jamil F.M. with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm William Hosea.
3: And I'm Clarence Boone and and proud to announce that Bring It On is yet another recipient of a statewide journalism award and more to come on that. Uh, And please be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.